The way companies handle data security is about to drastically change. With a new European law going into effect, the world is scrambling to make sure they are safe from breaches and fines alike. GDPR will soon be the new reality. But what about the law as fact and what's fiction? We're about to find out. Welcome to GDPR Decoded. May 25th, 2018. That date has been kicking around in the heads of various CIOs, CISOs, and legal departments around the world. That date designates when the European Commission will push the General Data Protection Regulation into effect. The law, meant to empower EU citizens when it comes to protecting themselves and the data that companies gather on them, has and will totally change the way companies handle personally identifiable information. Yet in the lead-up to the enactment, a lot of enterprises are struggling to figure out how they will be affected. Couple that with the threat of hefty fines of up to 20 million euros or 4% of global annual revenue for companies that fail to comply, and it leads to a ton of misconceptions. That's where we come in. We're talking to a bunch of experts to figure out what companies need to be aware of and what actions they need to take to comply with the law. In this episode, we spoke to global security advocate Thomas Fisher. Thomas gave a talk at this year's ShmooCon in Washington, D.C. that highlighted what companies should be on the lookout for and what new ways they can protect their data. Thomas and I try to whisk away the fog around the law while also discussing how GDPR draws a line between data privacy and data protection. Check it out. Okay, we are talking with Thomas Fisher, a global security advocate that has been talking at a few conferences about GDPR. So, Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Hi, Greg. Nice to be on the podcast. So the deadline to be compliant with GDPR is coming up in May, and I know you had a talk at ShmooCon in Washington, D.C. recently about what companies should and should not worry about as the deadline draws near. Uh, I know what grabbed everybody's attention is the possibility for massive fines if the EU determines that a company has violated these rules. So I have to think there are already some misconceptions out there when it comes to this regulation. I'm wondering if you could clear up some of the gray areas that we're seeing with regards to this law. There are quite a few misconceptions around this area. And I mean, one of them is definitely the fines. I mean, we focus on the big numbers, but there's actually, you know, there's there's actually multiple big numbers. In fact, if you look at it properly, there's distinct categories depending on the severity of what they call a breach. I mean, for me, one of the fundamental aspects and one of the things I try to communicate through some of my presentations is that this isn't a compliance exercise. A, A lot of people have tried to embark on this wrongly in the last few months when this has actually been voted into into law two years ago by the union people as you rightly said have been sitting on it but they now they're taking it as a compliance exercise in the sense that they're thinking oh this is similar to pci or other types or other situations like this where we'll put into place all the solutions and everything you know run the checklist yeah, we're compliant for for the GDPR, and, and to be fair, a lot of vendors have been pushing this compliance aspect too in their in you know in their marketing. So people are thinking, well, that, that's what we need to do. Unfortunately, if you look at the way things are, uh, are said and the way things have, are presented in the GDPR, it's very much more an exercise of accountability, because those aspects of fines, right, whether you pay ten million or twenty million, or whether you pay you know four percent or two percent of your revenue, are number one not necessarily applicable if you can demonstrate 
that you've taken the measures into play to protect the individual's personal data. Unfortunately, there's two aspects to we, we talk about privacy a lot, but it's not really privacy. It's about personal data. The when we're going down that road, if you think about protecting the data, it's it's just that. It's not about protecting the individual's privacy. It's protecting the person's data. The GDPR actually says that it's there to re appropriate the person's data so that the person owns it. And that's a complete mind shift if you think about it. Companies today, they collect data. They think, okay, I'm collecting this data. I own this data. And this is my data. I mean, imagine suddenly you go to Google and say, well, you know all those personal emails? I'm only allowing you to store them in my inbox. You can't do anything with them because, you know, my rights say that this is my data. So I can decide what I want to do with my data. And I'm not allowing you to, for example, scrape it to target ads to me or things like that. You know, there's a paradox and there's probably a shift in mentality on how companies should actually be looking at this instead of that compliance aspect and looking more at what do I need to do to protect that personal data and what do I need to do to be able to respond to any requests from the data protection authorities, for example, when something happens. Can I prove that I've done everything possible to protect that data? We've seen some companies sort of move forward with that, the bigger companies like the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world have started to take drastic steps to make sure they are meeting all of those regulations within the law. I mean, Facebook just announced a privacy center that they are standing up and the bigger companies are making adjustments as well. But I feel like a lot of the efforts that companies will have to go through to meet this qualification will end up pushing opt-out policies on users. So do you feel that's a good way for companies to handle how they're responding to you know, meeting the regulations inside the law? Well, for a start, if they're going with the opt-out policies, it, they'll be failing the law. <laughs> okay. um, specifically, there's a section in the GDPR about consent. Now, there's different types of consent. The underlying aspect is if you need to gather consent from an individual to allow you to gather their personal data, it has to be opt-in. Okay. Okay. You cannot opt out. It's not an opt-out situation anymore in this in this light. Essentially, if you start collecting personal data – for let's say you have a website like uh, like Amazon, you know, where as you mentioned them, or like Facebook, where you're collecting a person's address, phone number, and things like that. You need to essentially present to them why are you doing this, what are you going to do with the data, and how ultimately that data is going to be used or forwarded to to other countries or to other third parties. This has to be in an understandable language, so it can't be legal speak. You know, it can't be some kind of contractual agreement or whatever. It has to be user understandable. And the user has to say, yes, I'm opting it to give you my data. When I talk to, to people who are asking me about this, I give them the simple example. It's like, you know, today, most websites, they have an opt out but checkbox. No, it's going to be the opposite now. It's going to be you're going to have to click the checkbox to save it. You've read the terms of usage and you've read the, how your data, personal data is going to be used. And only then can you proceed. During your presentation, you spent time encompassing what data could actually fall under PII with regards to the law. It went beyond usual, you know, unique identifiers, date of birth, address, credit cards, but it stretches into some really interesting areas, biometric data, uh, IP data, uh, IMEI numbers. Uh, seems to be that the potential, there's the potential for some data to be overlooked when it comes to necessary protections. So what advice do you have for organizations when it comes to sorting through the data that needs to be protected? That's exactly true, Greg. It's actually part of Article 4. Um, the problem is the way that the GDPR defines personal data is any information that can be 
used to re-identify a natural person directly or indirectly and it's the indirectly that is going to be a real killer right because directly date of birth name etc that that works very well the, the issue comes about on the indirectly it's like so that can be an INEI phone number right an ip address especially as we move into ipv6 and some of these are actually defined in that in, in part of that article. Uh, I mean, the IMEI is specifically highlighted, for example. For those of you in the audience who don't know what an IMEI is, it's basically the mobile identifier. It's the unique mobile identifier. It also goes into biometric data and DNA data. So, for example, there are actually two different categories of personal data. There's common personal data, which you're allowed to collect, and then there's the sensitive data, which you're not necessarily allowed to collect unless you have specific reason to and you get approval to do so. But that one even goes into, for example, DNA. If you think about the, some of those companies that are collecting your DNA to do you know, DNA mapping and to tell you what diseases you might have and everything, but they're actually creating a database in the background, that kind of data becomes extremely sensitive under the GDPR, probably one of the conditions of the higher fines if you if you do get a breach on that data. Uh, so uh, I did some exercises over the past year on how am I going to identify this personal data. The important first step is, is understanding what personal data your different applications are, are, are gathering, right? So the way that I looked at it is, you know, first, let's go talk to the business owners. Unfortunately, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people realize this is that a lot of times you don't know what personal data you're actually gathering, right? So that's that's one challenge, one hurdle to get over. Once you get to that, once you understand that, it's really about reviewing the applications and what data they're capturing. There, I'm, you know, going down the street, going down the street of can I use this to re-identify a person? For example, if I just gather, have a web form that has, please provide your your you know your hair color, just because I'm just doing statistics on the number of people that have hair color. That's not really going to fall under that under that, under that re-identifiable information, but if I start to associate that with a name, I've reduced that factor of I can identify a pool of people. Now let's say I apply a date of birth to that, right? So I've again limited the number of people that potentially that I could, you know, to handful, you know, less than a hundred, so to speak, to, that I could potentially identify. If I add another factor, for example, nationality, now I've even gotten more details. I had um, uh, what was it? Uh, back in October, I was in I was in the south of France at a, a French information security conference, and I was checking out of the hotel. And the hotel guy gives me, you know, the hotel clerk gives me my my invoice, and it's a Thomas Fisher, but a Thomas Fisher lives in Germany. Yeah, this isn't me, right? So he goes, okay, well, let me fix the invoice. It's like, so um, do you live in Switzerland? Nope. Uh, okay, maybe I just <laughs> type in your address. He had like. 15 different Thomas Fishers in the pool of it registered in his database, right? And each one of them, the more information you gave, the more identifiable you become, right? And they had the full address and the you know full postcode, and, and they even had date of birth. You can argue why does a hotel have date of birth? It's usually because they want to do marketing emails, you know, around your birthday, come stay at our hotel for your birthday, and things like that, right? But that kind of data in itself that would become highly targetable, right? Because you that's the kind of data that you want to protect because you have all of the different elements that can identify one unique person. That's where you have to kind of address that aspect of what you're doing. So when I was looking at this, if you go back, if we go back a little bit more to the technical aspect, so if I can identify all the different elements of what can be used to identify a person, 
and you know, I had a big list in, in the slot in one of my slides in, in the Schmucon talk. You go from name, date of birth to address to uh, ID numbers because you know in, in Europe most countries have national ID numbers you have a passport number you might have a travel card why a travel card well a travel card uh, I give the example in London the TFL you have a, a an RFID travel card it checks me in checks me out but it also creates a database of everywhere I've been but let's imagine I have a name plus a travel pattern I can start to identify somebody because I know where his habitual routes, I know where he's starting in the morning, I know where he's ending in the evening, right? So I can start to locate and identify that person. So all of these elements that you start to build together, you need to kind of tag them or, or identify them as potential GDPR data objects and then start to think, okay, so if I only see one data object in whatever activity I'm monitoring in, in case of breach, I'm okay, but if I start to see multiple pieces of data object, now it's becoming a little bit more serious because now I have the potential to, to re-identify a person. I think that's where the complexity lies in having to understand all of these different data objects. Have I discovered all of them yet? Probably not. I think we came up to like 40 or 50 different types already, and I'm, I'm still thinking of more that could potentially have it. It could go far and wide, right? And that, that's the issue. To be honest, I think over time, this will get clarified. Once we start to see actual investigations by the data protection authorities, they might start to say, well, you know, this is the kind of things that you need to really be focusing on. Um, uh, Working Party uh, 29, WP29, who focuses on interpreting that data protection law, they might come up with some directives on, on personal data. But today, I mean, it's far-fetching. As long as you can use that data to identify a person, it's going to be very, very detrimental. In that same way, I turn my, you know, I turn myself on myself. So what data do I consider personal, right? What data do I consider my own? And that's, you know, all the physical aspects of my body, perhaps, you know, and of my appearance, you know, the way I talk, you know, my verbal aspects, uh, my visual aspects, my, the colors of my eyes, yes. But I also have certain things, like I have four cats. Does that pertain to personal data? Well, let's say I use it in a form where it says, you know, like kind of allows them to identify me. Does it really fit? Probably not. You know, I wouldn't see it as really identifiable personal pieces of personal data. Unfortunately, the the way things things are going today, well, the way things have been going in the past, and I think the way things are going to go, because because this is giving the rights back to the individual, the individual is allowed to make a complaint to the DPA to say, well, I think this this company is storing more personal data on even I'm really approved, and I don't like the personal data that they're storing. You know, I could go and say, well, they have information about my family life. They have information about my cats. I don't like that because it's my personal data. I have no idea how the DPAs are going to rule on that kind of aspect. Yeah, I was going to ask you because it just seems like that is so unwielding and so broad that I don't understand how any law enforcement body or any regulatory body is going to be able to encompass everything right off the bat. So I was going to ask you, you know, as we head into the latter half of the year where this is going to be enforced, do you see any changes coming? And do you think the changes will come soon? Because the fines that we were talking about there, the fines seem pretty big. But I imagine that in one of these cases, a company is going to turn around and say, this is extremely punitive, and they're going to be fighting in court for a while. So I imagine that they would like to avoid that. Could you see changes on the horizon based on how broad the law seems to be right now? 
I think it definitely will be fine-tuned. There's already some fine-tuning aspects going on. One of the things that I cover in my presentation is it, it for especially for people outside the Europe, is understanding the difference between a directive and a regulation. So the GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation. A regulation is specific in the fact that once it's voted by the EU, it is law across the EU, across the 27 member nations. A directive, which is what we had before, is only a suggestion. So it's like, we feel that we need to have laws for data protection, so you need to imp implement a data protection law. Introducing the regulation that starts in, in May, we have a common set of bodies, a common set of laws across all EU member states on data protection. That's actually quite beneficial for companies because now they know that they only have one set of regulations to be compliant to. So, you know, they, they have that, that aspect of, okay, we understand what we need to do across all 27 member nations. What's been happening is we saw it recently in, in the Netherlands and there was another country, but I can't remember who might be Germany or it might be France, but they voted local laws to address what they feel are certain gaps, different things, differences between previous laws that they had in place or, uh, you know, clarifications on some of the law. I think the Netherlands one, for example, actually clarifies certain procedural aspects. So like how, um, how can you file a complaint and things like that. Luxembourg, for example, they've precedent law that they're carrying over to uh, on top of the GDPR, which it actually makes privacy even more stricter. So they have, you know, they'll have even stricter laws. Germany has always had very strict privacy laws, for example, and most of those laws will continue to be in effect even after the GDPR because they are stricter than the GDPR. One of the things that the GDPR defines is that it's essentially the baseline if you have existing law or other laws that play into into data protection, those may take precedence based on, you know, the type of law. So, for example, if you have a stronger data protection law, that'll take precedence. Banking, for example, you know, the, a lot of times I talk to banks, uh, have discussions with banks, and they were like, well, the right to be forgotten, we, we can't really implement. And because you have fraud law that says that we have to keep records for 15, 30 years or what, uh, you know, and that's okay because the GDPR actually says if you have laws or if you have regulations and compliance that you need to do for other aspects of the law, those take precedence because there, there's a legal reason for you to do that. You know, it, it's to avoid somebody, you know, doing something malicious and then calling up and saying, forget me straight away just forget me right it's just not feasible right i mean it, they do take into accounts things like that okay so let's talk a little bit back we were talking earlier about uh, the data that is actually being collected and you know from the technical aspect you know you hear a lot about when it comes to protecting this data pseudonymization data minimization but during your talk you also talked about the possibility of building a uh, custom regex um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that idea and if it's something that companies could do to easily handle you know, what they have to do when it comes to the law? Pseudonymization is actually one of the few technical directives that um, GDPR recommends. Um, so essentially the idea there is that you, you anonymize the data that you're collecting to the point where you can no longer de-anonymize it, but it's still usable in, in calculation methods, right? Netflix tried this a number of years ago, failed miserably because somebody reversed the, the pseudonymization. I think it's doable. Some people don't think it's doable. I think if you apply the right methodology, if you think about it correctly, you can probably do it in, the, in a way that it works. 
minimization is something that's hinted at in the GDPR. And it, it, essentially, there's there's a section in GDPR called data protection by design. And part of that is you need to build into your design, application design, or your you know data protection use your designs aspects that will minimize your potential to be breached. And breach in the GDPR is defined as not only exfiltration, but modification, deletion, anything that will potentially destroy or, or alter the, the personal data. If you think about data minimizations, if you can reduce the amount of data that you're collecting, and if you can keep the amount of data that you're collecting to the bare minimum, you're reducing your potential breach footprint. Right, So that's the idea behind data minimization. It can go as far as saying, well, I'm not going to allow you to copy any data to your local machine. If you're using it for calculations and things like that, you have to do everything inside the specific container or inside a specific application. So I went one step further and I was thinking, I've spent a number of years doing incident handling and threat hunting. And I'm thinking, so traditionally, when we look at incident response, you know, we look for an event, we decide if that event is a potential incident. If it's an incident, you open an investigation. And during that investigation, you're going to look at the conditions of how your environment got breached, you know, as, in, as in how did they get in? And what did they do? The thing is, we never really focus on the data, right? If you think about what, why did it take Equifax so long to tell everybody how much user data was actually exfiltrated? Yahoo, the same way. You know, they came back. How many times did they come back? Two or three times to actually revise the number? As responders, we don't focus on that. We're focusing on, you know, the questions like, oh, how did they get in? Oh, what can I do to stop them from getting in again? You know, I kind of had to rush through the Shmoo Talk Talk because I, I spent a bit too much time on the beginning is that I actually try to introduce better methodology or doing instant response with a data focus. In that, I'm like... Okay, so today we look for system events, we look for you know user events, things like that, but we don't really look for the data events. And how are we going to look for those data events, right? So this is this is where my concept of regex comes into play. Is like if I can dynamically with the tools that I have, I can dynamically identify the data, or I can, you know, if I see, uh, let's say, if I see data being exfiltrated via USB, or if I see data being copied up to an FTP server, or if I see something being HTTP'd out, if I can capture, you know, if I have PCAPs and I have a data blob. I need some way to identify if it's personal data or not. I started to look at that aspect and, and being able to actually re-identify data or identify the data where it's being stored, how it's moving, and building those regex. The best way that you can do that is either you have fingerprinting technologies where you're fingerprinting all the data that you have initially and then you look for those fingerprints or you have some kind of dictionary aspects where you're detecting dictionary words be they common names and, and things like that or you try to build regexes and the regex comes into play a lot of times with things like national ids passport numbers credit card numbers and things like that so the whole principle behind that is my thought patterns on improving that incident response process and trying to identify that data. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense, and it leads into another question I was going to ask you because I know that there is that part of the law that states people can't only be informed if data has been lost, but if the data is altered or if there's any hint of unauthorized access, companies or organizations have 72 hours to let people know. But I have to imagine that it would take IR teams more than 72 hours, especially at a big company, to figure out if data has been altered. So I'm wondering if you've been hearing how companies plan to handle that type of scenario or if, you know, the regex thing that you're talking about has caught on anywhere. 
So I, I know a lot of what we traditionally call data loss prevention tool sets have been focusing on releasing, you know, GDPR policy detections and things like that, right? Okay. So, you know, that's the way some companies are looking at it. Some companies are handling it. They're looking at their traditional DLP solutions to kind of find that data or to activate, to, to monitor that, that data, um, which will help in their incident response process. Let's just go back. There is a 72-hour notification period. And uh, one of the misconceptions, right? is but we okay. talked about earlier okay so you know one of those big numbers that people focused on yes you have to notify in 72 hours here's the thing you need to notify in 72 hours that something happened and you need to notify the dpa if you suspect that personal data has been compromised and if you do suspect that personal data has been compromised you also need to notify the data subjects right but it's an initial notification so it can be as simple as saying, um, and that, that's kind of the recommendations that have been coming out of uh, things like ENESA. ENESA is the European uh, Network Information Security Association. So they've written this whole paper on, on handling data breaches or under the GDPR. Okay. But um, essentially, in that 72-hour notification period, you're, you need to say, yes, I've been breached. Yes, personal data is affected. And this is our initial thoughts on the personal data, right? You then have checked off your 72-hour notification, but you can't sit on your hands and wait for something to happen. You basically need to go back and actually do the proper digging and do the final notifications with the detailed aspects. Um, and that's that's the key point, is that the 72 hours is an initial notification, but you still have to, within a reasonable amount of time, be very explicit and very precise on what data what's happened to that data and when what data is affected and that's another aspect of the gdpr that kind of gets overlooked a little bit it's there is a lot of precision in what you need to report right let's say i'm a you know i'm a, uh, I'm a i mean you use facebook at the beginning let's say i'm facebook and um one of my databases gets stolen it affects you know like a uh, hundred thousand people you essentially will need to contact those hundred thousand people Right. Okay. So that precision that you bring up, like, look, as we've seen stateside, you, you look at Equifax or Uber, for instance, you know, they have, they take a while to get their ducks in a row when it comes to notifying the public about breaches. Is the 72 hour mandate feasible in your eyes, even from just an initial notification standpoint, because larger companies tend to have a lot of channels to go through when releasing something. And then smaller companies have, you know, they don't have the resources to push out all the relevant info right away. So that 72 hour mandate feasible in your eyes? That's been a big question a lot of in a lot of meetings that I sat through, and it does require a rethink of the incident response process. Um, I think it's doable. You know, if you if you're handling, if you understand where your data is, if you're monitoring that data, and, you know, you, you can do it. Right. The problem is, is that it does require a rethink of how you're doing things. Um, you know, one of the aspects in the GDPR is they they have a data protection officer. Um, you know, US we call it more data privacy officer, for example. Right. But the data protection officer is actually named role. He's kind of the interface between the world and the company. And one of his mandates, um, if you if you need one, because you don't necessarily need one, but if one of his mandates is that he needs to ensure that all the organizations are, are doing all the parts of the organization are doing everything they need to do to, to be able to respond to those kinds of those kinds of things right in the breach notification the thing is you know I think companies will get to that 72 hour point even if they do it wrong at the beginning you know they'll see oh this server 
got attacked, this server potentially holds personal data, they'll notify the DPA, right? Uh, because they don't have any position, they only need to notify the DPA. Um, don't hold me to that because I'm not a lawyer. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the pro- the bigger problem is companies aren't ready for the other parts of the GDPR, the other data, you know, the, the other rights that, uh, rights that the user has. And that's responding to those requests. You know, I, I covered them in, in the ShmooCon talk. You know, there's like seven specific data subject rights that a company needs to be able to respond to, right? right? Amongst one of the biggest ones that people talk about is the right to be forgotten. But there's also the right to request access to your data, right? There's the right to to request modification of your data, right? Because you've, let's say, you know, you recently um, recently had a sex change or whatever, you know, it's like okay. you won't be able to, you know, a company won't be able to not change your sex if, the, if you call up and say, I want my personal data, you know, fixed in my, in my, in my account that's going to require a lot more thought and a lot more process and procedures to be implemented, right? Because not only are you going to need to have, you know, some kind of email, some kind of form to be able to request that, that or even a help desk to, for the sub data subject to be able to request his rights, but you're also going to have to respond in, in a reasonable amount of time. And I think reasonable amount of time is loosely defined as 30 days, right? Right. Imagine that, right? So, Imagine a big company suddenly gets a thousand requests from data subjects to understand what's being done with their personal data. Yeah, I mean, that's, I would have a hard time figuring out how a company would handle that. Think of the Googles, the Amazons, Facebook, right? You know, yes, our personal data is there and they're using it to do, you know, to, to, for, for whatever reasons they're using it. But if I want to check that reason, I'm allowed to call them and say, hey, guys, can you, Tell me exactly what you're doing with my data. Can you demonstrate what you're doing with my data? My data, um, or, or you know, the one I have fun I have fun with all the time is um, one of them is uh, data portability. So that you know, the subjects, you know, as a sub data subject, I can call you and say, uh, I want my data because I'm going to another provider. So give me my data. The law says that you basically have to give the data back to the user in a machine usable format. I mean, yeah, what? Is a machine usable <laughs> format? How do you define a machine usable format? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 like, is it a JSON blob? Is it an encrypted JSON blob? Is it zeros and ones? You know, I mean, machine readable format is zeros and ones technically, <laughs> at the lowest level, right? Right. So, it's, 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 so I I mean, personally, I think. Companies are going to stumble more on those aspects than the 72-hour incident response process, right? Because you can adapt your incident response process because that's the whole nature of an incident response process. If, if you're not adapting it, you're probably losing out on, on, on the real, you know, you're, you're probably not doing your, your lessons learned aspects and things like that. But answering to these data subject requests, that's going to be the nightmare. Right. And, you know, for my final question here, uh, listening to that and, and the nightmares that, that could possibly arise from this, you know, I think about the bigger companies, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Googles, the, the Microsofts, and just in terms of just advertising data, the amount of data that they collect on us, you know, and you were talking about how for a lot of these companies, it's tough for them to even figure out how much data that they are collecting, you know, and I hear all of these stories and I have to wonder what you think, you know, what type of shift this will have, because I feel like that the more and more you talk about how these companies need to be precise 
and need to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row. And with how fast these technology companies move, it's kind of at loggerheads when you really think about it in terms of mindset. So I'm wondering, you know, just in your opinion, are, are we headed for a potential disaster here? Because personally, I don't see a way that there isn't some huge case that really sort of disrupts the entire business model for the way worldwide technology works. I honestly don't don't think so and that's you know that's one of the misconceptions that we started this conversation off with is that I think companies will change in their their attitude towards the way that they do collect and store personal data but I don't think that they'll they'll stop doing it right I mean I don't I don't the the thing is one of the aspects is is reasonable you know uh, there's there's an aspect of reasonable uh let's say you know I can't think of the word. We'll call it punishment, right? Um, okay. uh, the, the GDPR isn't like black and white. It's like if you get breached, you're not going to get fi- you're not necessarily going to get fined ten million euros, right? Um, there is aspects of have you taken measures into account to uh, be able to avoid this breach in the future? Have you taken uh, possible measures to you know do that? Uh, re-, re look at how you're storing the data, right? There's there's all these aspects of of controls and and compromises and you know building that you know that security you know data protection by design um, aspects where if you can demonstrate that you're doing that it's about you know compromise it's about done those things uh, I, the GDPR doesn't say you know that there will no, be no more breaches the GDPR just basically says that if you get breached and you haven't d- done everything possible to protect that personal data that you has been handed to you by our citizens then we're going to get upset right and we're going to we're going to start finding you uh, that's the problem one of the major problems i have with all this this compliance and the way that this has been interpreted it's like uh, sometimes I, I i listen to some of the things that are go, that have been said and it's like people think it's black and white right it's like if you collect personal data it's the end of the world no it's not it's like the whole point of this this law was to put a framework on how you can collect personal data and give people like myself a eu data subject the right to decide if I want to give you my data or not. If you look at the way things have been, data collection is basically, it, it's like it's, it's like a free-for-all, right? I mean, your personal data gets collected by every site and uh, every, potentially every site possible, right? And that's, I think that will change, right? People will start saying, well, why do I really need to collect this data? Do I really need to do this, right? But companies like, well, Amazon uh, and and uh, companies like like Facebook, they, they they're not obliged to stop collecting personal data they just need to you know tell people what they're doing with the personal data i mean is that really that much of a business hinderer i mean if you think about it it's it's not as long as you as long as you've done all that security and you've put into place the controls and and you know and the compensate the compensating controls and you have some some means of actually addressing potential you know addressing uh, breaches and ensuring that personal data is at your best possible level kept uh, secure, then you can carry on doing business. And, and you know, th- as a final thought in this, in this, and that domain is that that's why I don't like when people call it privacy, 
right? Okay. Because it's not privacy. Privacy is a much more deeper and more complex issue, right? Privacy is basically not allowing anybody else to know anything about me or, you know, things like that. This is about protecting the personal data that I willingly give you. And that's, I mean, if anything, that would be like the key phrase is protect the personal data that I am willingly giving you. Right. I appreciate you making that determination because I do feel that people get really, really worked up about the privacy part. And it, you are right that there is a willingness there to hand over this data. So it is not just about privacy. It is definitely more about protection. Hence why protection yeah. is in the name of the law. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't even know if, it, if privacy comes even up, comes up even that much in the law. I should actually one day do a quick search on the text and go look for privacy and see how many times it comes up because <laughs> it's like, I kept correcting myself during, you know, it's, it's, it's data protection by design. But when I look at a lot of the slides and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the marketing material, it's always privacy by design. It's not, it's not, it's data protection by design. Data protection is a much different meaning than privacy. Well, Thomas, I appreciate you taking some time with us to answer some questions. I'm sure there's going to be a continuing stream of questions from now until <laughs> May and beyond. So yeah, they will. <laughs> it's Thomas Fisher, global security advocate. Check him out. Very well versed on GDPR. Thomas, thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me, Greg. And thanks for, thanks for the audience for listening. Thanks to Thomas again for helping us sort out the signal from the noise when it comes to GDPR. In our next episode, we talk to two cloud security experts on how the law is going to change the way companies are utilizing and protecting the data on these ubiquitous third-party services. For CyberScoop, I'm Greg Otto. Thanks for listening to GDPR Decoded.